Get ahead of the postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. What's up, Binger? The bonus episode that you're about to hear is the one that started it all. I interviewed today's guest for the very first episode of Season 9 of Truth and Justice. She is the voice behind the In the Dark podcast, where her investigation helped uncover information that led to the release of wrongfully convicted man Curtis Flowers. Give it up for Madeline Barron. The internet's full of true crime podcasts. More and more are added to the list every day. Figuring out where to start or where to go next can be overwhelming. But have no fear, I'm here to help. I'm Bob Ruff, and this is the place to find your next true crime binge. Madeline, thanks so much for joining me. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on and tell us a little bit about Curtis Flowers. Yeah, thanks for having me. I guess to get started, you want to go ahead and introduce yourself to our listeners, um, other than, I mean, uh, anyone who's listened to the podcast, and a lot of my listeners know that you are the host of the In the Dark podcast, but prior to that, in, in a more general sense, who who is Madeline Barron? So I'm an investigative reporter with American Public Media, and I've been a reporter for a while now, and I focus mostly on um, stories about the criminal justice system and have reported extensively on that. Um, both for American public media and then before that for Minnesota Public Radio. And, well, maybe about close to five years ago now, um, I started the podcast In the Dark with Samara Freemark, who's the lead producer on the show. And our first season was about an abduction case in Minnesota and how law enforcement botched that case. It's the abduction of Jacob Wetterling. And then the second season is about the case of Curtis Flowers. Awesome. Now, have you guys done a third season yet? No, no, not yet. We're, we are going to be doing a third season. So there is, there is a third season in the works. Yes. Okay. Uh, American public media, what type of media outlet is that? Is that online media or is it print? It's public radio. So uh, American public media is a nonprofit public radio. It does all kinds of things. So it runs Minnesota public radio, South California public radio, the current music station. They also do things like distribute the BBC in the United States and then have lots of um, shows as well, like Marketplace, the uh, radio show. And um, other shows as well, including In the Dark. And so it's this, you know, pretty large uh, public radio company, and we're just one part of it. I work for a team at American Public Media called APM Reports, and it's a investigations and documentary team. And then our podcast is part of that. So there's five people who work on In the Dark full time, all the time, and I'm one of them. So that is your your job with American Public Media is specifically now just to work on the In the Dark podcast. Exactly. Oh, that's awesome. So, you know, and I, I just started listening. Your, yours is one of those, and I'm sure you know, being a, a podcaster yourself, is you get busy and there's a million awesome true crime podcasts out there that every all my listeners are always telling me to check out, and I never have time to do so. And the, one of the reasons for our first episode of, of kind of covering these one episode at a time cases, uh, I, wanted to, I wanted to contact you is two reasons. One is because you were probably the one that more than anyone else, my listeners told me, you need to check out In the Dark. And uh, number two, the timeliness of it, and that uh, if I understand correctly, Curtis Flowers was just released within the last couple of days, right? 
the case was dropped against him on Friday. So yeah, just a few days ago. So why? Uh, well, I guess we'll get we'll get back. I don't want to get too far ahead of us. But yeah, so th- so that was as of today. That was like five days ago. And I I have started listening to your podcast. I'm I'm like three episodes in, and I want to say it's it's very very well done. Both the the reporting, the sound design, and you guys have a hell of a team working over there. Thanks. Yeah, I mean we were we're lucky to be able to have the time to really deeply report um, our story. So I'm really grateful for that. Right. Yeah. And I want to get into some of that, some of the uh, nuts and bolts of that as we as we move along. But before we do that. A lot of my listeners know about the Curtis Flowers case, but a lot of them don't. So can you give us kind of a, a Reader's Digest, just a, a breakdown of, it, it's a pretty complicated history, but you know w- what the actual offense was and what Curtis's cases looked like over the last 21, 22 years? Sure. So this uh, all began in July of 1996 in a small town in Mississippi called Winona. And that morning, there was a small town furniture store on the main street of town. And that morning, four people were shot and killed at the furniture store. Um, one died a short time later at a hospital, but, but four people died. And nobody witnessed what happened. Um, nobody survived um, who was shot. And within a very short period of time, law enforcement decided to focus their attentions on this local guy, Curtis Flowers, who at the time was in his mid-20s, totally unremarkable, no criminal history, had worked at the store for a few days and then had left. basically. It just didn't work out. It was nothing dramatic, but he had stopped working there after a few days. Anyways, and so um, he was interrogated. They didn't find a gun on him or anything that would tie him to the scene. And so for months, he was just out, and they didn't have anybody else that they had um, charged or anything for this crime. And then a few months later, Curtis Flowers was arrested, and he was put in jail, and he has been had been locked up ever since. And, and to us, so the case, that wasn't what made the case stand out for us, anything about the crime itself or the fact that Curtis was arrested without a whole lot of evidence. Um, what stood out was the fact that by the time that we found out about the case, Curtis Flowers had been tried six times for this crime. And what had happened was he would be tried, he'd be convicted, he'd be sentenced to death, but then he'd appeal. And he would win his appeals because the courts would find that his trials weren't fair. And specifically, the reason they weren't fair, the courts found over and over again, was because the prosecutor, the district attorney in the case, this guy, Doug Evans, had committed misconduct. So, for example, um, on more than one occasion, the prosecutor had struck black people from the jury pool specifically because of their race, which is, of course, against the Constitution. So Curtis would keep winning, but winning wasn't a whole lot different than losing because he would just be tried again by the same prosecutor. So it went on and on and on. The first three trials, he was convicted, sentenced to death. The fourth and fifth trials were hung juries. And then the sixth trial, the most recent one, which was in 2010, convicted, sentenced to death, nearly all white jury. And he has been appealing ever since. So when we, um, a few years ago, we started reporting on this in 2017. And at that point, Curtis was trying to appeal his sixth conviction or sixth trial conviction. And we moved to Mississippi, our team, and I lived there for nearly a year. And we basically went through this case from top to bottom, and we interviewed hundreds of people. We collected hundreds of thousands of pages of records. We tracked down witnesses who testified for both sides. And as we did that, the two things happened. Number one is that the case against Curtis Flowers did not stand up to scrutiny. So we had you know, key witnesses recanted their testimony, said that they'd lied on the stand, um, we discovered that junk science had been used in the case. 
But also we began examining the conduct of this prosecutor, the district attorney, Doug Evans. And we did a really large data analysis where we looked at, we knew that he had been striking black people from juries in Curtis's trials. That was well known. But what we wanted to know was what was he doing in all the other trials that he and his office had handled since he'd been the DA for many, many years. And so we did this very large and time-consuming data analysis where we found that um, his uh, district attorney, Doug Evans, in his office, over the whole time that he had been district attorney, had struck black people from juries at nearly four and a half times the rate they struck white people from juries. So a pretty strong finding. And we released all this as a pod, you know, as season two of In the Dark. And then as we did, um, and shortly thereafter, things really started to change in Curtis's case. And the Supreme Court ended up hearing the case, the U.S. Supreme Court, which is extremely unexpected. And they heard his case and reversed his conviction. And then his defense attorney appeared at a bail hearing and convinced the local trial judge to grant Curtis bail. That happened in December of last year. So Curtis has been out since December, living in an undisclosed location, basically under house arrest. He has like an ankle monitor. It was pretty limited on what he could do. And then just a couple days ago, the case is over because the, what had happened was the district attorney eventually recused himself from the case. And the Mississippi Attorney General's office had been examining the case for the last few months. And so just a couple of days ago, the Mississippi AG's office announced it was not going to try the case again. And it asked for it to be dismissed with prejudice, which was significant because that means it is over. You know, you know, they cannot come back and change their mind and decide to, decide to indict him again for these murders. So that ended this, this odyssey. And, you know, Curtis had been locked up for about 23 years total for a crime that he has insisted since day one that he, he did not commit. And there was, again, no slam dunk evidence ever against him for those murders. So through the course of his appeals, you know, you, I heard on the podcast when you just explained that he, the trials, the convictions were thrown out largely based on prosecutorial misconduct. And you mentioned the, you know, that he, he was striking the black jurors, which is a Batson violation. Were there any other instances? Because, you know, it seemed like from your, your reporting that, you know, that it sounded like the, the investigator for the prosecution was manipulating mis- witnesses, drawing out false testimony. Did any of that, was any of that cited in any of the appeals or was it mostly due that he kept repeatedly striking all the black jurors? So a lot of what we found was cited in the appeals. So there was our jury analysis, which was important to, which cited in friend of the court briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court. But um, back in the trial court, and also in some of the friend of the court briefs to the U.S. Supreme Court, but especially at the trial court level, our findings about the evidence in the case were cited extensively. So, for example, there is a guy who was clearly an alternate suspect in the case who had not been fully disclosed, it seems, to the defense. And that was very significant to the trial judge in the case who have ended up granting Curtis Flowers bail. There was um, there was a string of jailhouse informants, all of whom have reversed their testimony and said that they lied when they testified that Curtis had confessed to the murders. So there's just a lot of things that fell apart and, you know, it was either showing that the evidence was not solid or wasn't really evidence at all, or that there were things that the defense were not made aware of at the time of the trial that, you know, clearly they should have been made aware of. And one of those most strikingly was this man, Willie James Hemphill, who there was just one sheet in the whole discovery about him, and it was a form that this guy had signed, waiving his rights a couple of days after the murders. And there was really very little about him. I hadn't heard of him before. And we tracked him down, and he said to us, oh, yeah, I was um, 
I was arrested for that. And, you know, they questioned me and they said they said people saw me on the street where the murders happened the morning of the murders. And, you know, by the way, when I walked into the, to the police station or the law enforcement office, I was wearing these Fila Grant Hill shoes, which was interesting because the, there were bloody shoe prints found at the murder scene made by Fila Grant Hill shoes. And so this is just one example. Like, here's this person who's an obvious alternate suspect. I mean, he himself calls himself, an, you know, an, a suspect. And yet the defense really didn't know the full extent of how he had been questioned or the fact that he had been arrested. And we ended up locating some of those records about his arrest and the full extent of it. So, yeah, there were a lot of things that we found out and they all ended up mattering at different moments in, in the case. It's pretty incredible that the time we live in now you know, with, with our show, not nearly to the extent you have. You, I applaud you guys for the effort that you guys have put in. But we're seeing, we saw with Undisclosed, with Anand Syed's case and our work in Ed Eight's case and you guys with Curtis Flowers, how you know podcasters are investigating these cases and findings are being heard before judges. In your case, the U.S. Supreme Court put a lot of the weight into overturning the decision based on, I mean, I understand that, right? That based on the what you found through your investigative work. Yeah, we definitely played a role in what they were considering, but they were a lot of what they were considering was really just the record in the Flowers cases of striking Black people from the juries. But but our reporting was was part of what the court was hearing. What happened at the trial court level, I think, was very much more directly related to what we found. I mean, the also the question is, you know, it's extremely surprising that the U.S. Supreme Court would grant cert in the case. And so it does seem like the publicity, perhaps, that the case had received, um, in part because of our reporting, may have influenced the court. But we just don't know. And, you know, for us as reporters, you know, we don't go into, like, our, our interest in this case uh, back in 2017 and really throughout is, you know, how could Curtis Flowers come to be tried six times for the same crime? And as investigative reporters, you know, what does this story say about the power of prosecutors in this country? And so we never saw our job as trying to exonerate Curtis Flowers or prove that he didn't do it or prove that he did it. It was really focused on the actions of the prosecutor. And the prosecutor was really in many ways the main character of the story. And so we were, frankly, a little bit, more than a little surprised to find out that the Supreme Court had granted cert and heard the case. But at a certain point, it just seemed like after so many years of Curtis not winning, he suddenly started winning and he's just been on a roll until, you know, and all the way up till the end. Now he's completely, it's completely done. Did you ever end up having contact with him? As I said, I'm only, I'm, I'm into the third episode of, of your series. And at that point, you had mentioned that the, he was basically locked down and not allowed to speak to you. Did, were you ever through the course of making the podcast able to actually speak with Curtis? Not through the main part of season two. So the first time that I was able to talk to Curtis was when he walked out of jail in December and got out on bail. So that was the first time. Yeah, so we did all, basically all the reporting for season two without being able to talk to him. His lawyers declined to make him available. Were you, were you there physically when he walked out? Yes. Can you talk about that? What was that like? You know, it was... Another surprising day, you know, we were, Natalie Jablonski, who's a producer on the show, and I were at the courthouse, you know, covering the hearing, really didn't think he was going to get bail. I mean, at that point, you know, this is still a death penalty case. And usually if you're facing the death penalty, a judge will think, well, I'm not going to let you out on bail because obviously your chances of you showing back up in this courtroom are minimal, you know, if you could be executed. So it was, it's pretty rare to see bail be granted in a death penalty case, but it happened. And then a couple hours later, he was released from jail. And in that moment, I mean, I don't, it did not really hit me in that moment, although there he was talking 
you know, as a reporter, you've got so much you're thinking about in those moments. You know, we're recording it, got to ask questions, you know, just making sure that we're doing our job. And then after he got out, later that night, the family invited us over to um, his sister's house. And you hear from this in, the, in an episode of the podcast. And we had, you know, this conversation with Curtis and with his family. And that, I think it was at that moment that it really hit me that he was out. And also because, you know, we'd spent so much time with so many people in the story, including Curtis's family. And so it was this like really kind of unremarkable evening at their house, except it was extremely remarkable because Curtis was there. But it was just a strange evening where, you know, there's his sister and her sister's husband and they're cooking like they always do. And there's Curtis's father joking around, but also there's Curtis, you know, and it was just really strange moment. And then at that point, it really did seem like things were going in Curtis's favor. I mean, the fact that he got bail was, again, surprising. And at that point, it really did seem like, you know, what I don't know what the likelihood is that he ends up back behind bars once he's gotten out. I think it was really looking up for him at that point. You know, one of the things that, that I've struggled with, see, I don't have a journalistic background at all. I was a fire investigator and firefighter when I started doing this. And, and one, I don't want to call it a trap because it's, I don't regret any of the connections that I've made, but one of the the struggles that I have is getting extremely emotionally connected to the people that I'm working with. And, you know, at some point I would say fighting for you as a, with the journalistic background and I can, I can kind of hear the, there's, there's journalistic integrity <laughs> coming from you. Were you able to, to keep those emotions out of the process while you were working the case or did there become a time where you've moved beyond just, just trying to report and act and almost turn it into a fight for Curtis? Oh, I would say it was always a reporting project. I mean, you know, one of the greatest things, like strengths that we can bring to our work is the fact that we are not on either side. So, you know, we don't need the facts to line up a certain way. And if anything, I mean, the greatest fear that I have as a journalist is being wrong, you know, and so I would never want to do anything that I think would increase my chances of being wrong and certainly wanting an outcome to be a certain way and, and fighting for that outcome. I, to me, like as, and, and I'm not saying to downplay the work of defense attorneys or prosecutors, but it's just different you know, than the work that, that journalists do. And in Curtis's case, too, I mean, um, there's something very valuable about being able to talk to people when you aren't on either side. You know, a lot of the people who talked to us had not talked to anyone else and didn't want to talk to anyone else, didn't want to talk to somebody on Curtis's side or on the state side. Mm -hmm. And so I think really being open to whatever we were going to find out was really helpful. And, you know, it's, I always think it's important for our work to really maintain some boundaries in what we're doing. So for me, I'm always aware of like, okay, this isn't my story. You know, this is, this did not happen to me. These aren't my loved ones who were murdered. This isn't my loved one who's in prison. So I'm here to do a very particular kind of job and to give the, you know, the, the people that are emotionally affected who are living it, the space to express those emotions. But my job is, is something different. And so that's, I think, something that I always keep in mind. And, you know, this is a case, of course, there are going to be difficult interviews, but, but I really do see my role as very distinct from that, the role of the people who are, are living the story, if that makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. And as, as you were explaining that process of, of not, you know, fighting for or working towards a particular objective, but just to, to report the truth. All I was thinking is, I wish you worked for like CNN or Fox News or any of the <laughs> the news that we're hearing nowadays, because we just don't hear that kind of objectivity 
very often anymore. And I, I wish we did because it's, it's, it's very impressive that you're able to maintain that through the process. Because, you know, I've, I've approached things that way, but I tend to be, I'm kind of an overly emotional person. And I, and I do, as a matter of fact, our last season, I never spoke with the, uh, the defendant that we were working with for exactly that reason. Cause I know I get, I get, I'm just not built that way. And I also don't have that, that kind of training. So it's admirable that you were able to do that. Did you ever get to, you know, when you were at his house, do, do, do you feel like you were still in reporter mode then? Or was, or was there an, anything personal going on with you by the fact that this man was free in large part, I believe, due to your work? I mean, certainly we felt that in the moment, you know, I mean, you couldn't help but feel that in that moment. So yeah, I think, I think it was, that was the moment where it really hit me that, you know, and you don't, you never know, you know, you can never predict an outcome when you go into reporting something. You don't, first of all, you don't know what you're going to find out. So you don't know what kind of outcome would even be possible or appropriate. And then, you know, even when you are, you know, finding things out that are pretty strong, you just never know if, you know, the world is going to react or care about it. And so a lot has to happen in a work of journalism to have any kind of impact at all. And some of it is just total chance. But um, so I, I never really thought that it would happen this way. But it was really remarkable to see Curtis back with his family. I mean, their family is so close. And, you know, his parents for years visited him every single visiting hour. They would drive more than an hour each way to Parchman Prison where he was and visit with him. And just didn't miss a visiting hour. I mean, they were just always there. And so, you know, which is, pre- which is pretty unusual. I mean, even for people, regardless of whether people are innocent or guilty, I mean, at a certain point, you know, it's pretty common for family to just get fatigued or not able to visit or, you know, whatever. People lose ties with the world outside, but that never happened for Curtis. And so I think that made that moment of this kind of homecoming all the more emotional for everyone. I mean, it was like, finally, he's back, you know, for the, for for his family. And that's all they ever really wanted. Well, and that's such a great situation for him to be in too. We've experienced it, you know, with, we've had a couple of our, you know, Ed Eights and George Powell that have have walked out from cases that we covered. And we watched two very stark differences there where Ed was very much like Curtis. He had a family, his wife and kids continued to visit him after 20 years in prison. And he had that support network, and and he's he's out and thriving now, and and I'm glad to hear that's the case. That seems to be the case with Curtis too, that he has that support network because so oftentimes you see people come out and they don't have that support network, and before too long they end up right back for a different reason. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, with Curtis, his family has just been so strong, and really like not just his immediate family, but his extended family, and then of course you know. At a certain point, too, he started getting so many letters in prison from people who had found out about his case and were supporting him that way. So I think all that is is mattering a great deal, for sure. That's awesome. Did you ever, you, you, know, you maintained your objectivity throughout the, the reporting on the story all the way to the end. Did there ever come a time, even you know, once this was all over, that you made a determination in your own mind if you believe that Curtis is innocent or guilty? I mean, I guess what I would say about it is that there is no good evidence against Curtis Flowers for these murders. That's just true. And that's the state of the case right now. I mean, that's sort of how, how I look at it. Speaking of that evidence, can we talk a little bit about the three, the three different elements to the case as you kind of laid them out? We had the route uh, where, where witnesses say, said at trial, at multiple trials, that they saw Curtis walking from his house over to an area where he supposedly stole a gun and then back home and then back to the store 
shot the four people and then and then fled back home. And then there was the gun evidence, the gun that was never recovered, but somehow they tied it to Curtis. And then the the jailhouse snitches. Is, is that accurate? Those are kind of the three elements of the stanchions of the state's case? Yes. And that's, yeah, exactly. And that's sort of how we thought about them when we went through our reporting. So what the state said was that, there, look, there's no, you know, smoking gun piece of evidence, basically. You know, there's no video of Curtis committing the murders. There's no DNA match. But there are a lot of other pieces of evidence that t- taken together add up to a convincing case. So that's what the state was arguing. And the easiest way, to, I think, to think of it is exactly that, like the route, the gun, the confessions. And so the route, like the way that what the state said happened that morning was that basically Curtis woke up. He was angry with um, the people at Tardy Furniture, the store. So he wanted to kill them, but he didn't have a gun. And so he woke up pretty early in the morning and he walked across town, broke into a car that was parked outside of a factory, stole a gun, walked back home, went into his house, came back out of his house, walked all the way again across town to the furniture store, shot four people in the head and then walked all the way home. And he was home like the rest of that morning. And he was home when the police came to talk to him later that day. So they then like what the state had was they had a string of witnesses, people who, who claimed to be witnesses, at least, who said that they had seen Curtis walking basically this route that the, the, the state said he had walked. And many of these witnesses testified at trial. Lots of them testified at many trials. And they were very insistent that, that like, look, I saw this. And, and, you know, when they would be cross-examined, they'd get very, like some of them very angry, clearly, and frustrated. Like, what are you doing calling me a liar? I did see all this. And so what we did was we went and tried to track down all these people who talked and, and these like so-called route witnesses. And one of the first things that seemed important to us was the time, the timing of, the, of these people making statements. And almost nobody, I mean, these are statements that for the most part were given weeks or in some cases, many months after the murders. And we wondered how did people in a town of just a few thousand people come to be making statements? You know, you'd think these would be the sort of statements you might collect that day. You know, someone says, oh, I just saw this person walking down the street. But it really wasn't something that happened that day. These are mostly witnesses who came forward, if they came forward at all, so much later. So we wanted to know, okay, how did they end up coming forward to give these statements in the first place? And, and, and that is where we realized and learned from talking to these witnesses that in so many cases, the police, law enforcement, had found them. And we you know, have many interviews that you hear on the podcast of these witnesses talking about how they felt pressured to say that they saw Curtis, how they did not see Curtis but they felt like there was no way out of it. You know, sometimes, and, and this is also where the history of, you know, the United States in general, Mississippi in particular, and this town additionally comes to bear because a lot of the witnesses were black and felt a particular type of pressure from largely white law enforcement questioning them. Anyways, and so, but they also felt really trapped in some cases because they had been giving sworn testimony, you know, so they were concerned about what would happen if they told the truth now. And so the route really collapsed when we interviewed those witnesses. But at, at trial, you know, it, it looked like, I mean, the prosecution had a map. It all looked, you know, relatively convincing to some, to, to many of the jurors, at least. And then the, the second piece would be the gun. And so the gun was, you know, according to the state, the gun was never found. But they claimed using basically junk science that they could determine what gun it was. And that, you know, they tried to say that Curtis would have known that this gun was in a glove compartment of the car where he, that he allegedly stole it from. Can we pause there for just a second? Because I'm sure this is probably explained later on in the podcast, but as I'm listening to this story, it makes absolutely no sense to me that he walks across town, 
happens to open a car door to a, to a vehicle that happens to have a gun in the glove box and take it and walk as though it was intentionally. How did how did the state theorize that that Curtis even knew to go to that place into that car to find that gun? So the man whose gun was in that glove compartment allegedly is a guy named Doyle Simpson, who is basically like a distant relative of Curtis Flowers and was actually a suspect himself in this case at some point. I mean, he was certainly questioned. And it's it's a complex part of the story. But basically, this guy, on the morning of the murders, he goes to work at this furniture store. By all accounts, he's working there that morning. But he goes out to his car and he realizes, oh my gosh, my gun is gone, this 380 handgun. It's the same kind of gun, generally speaking, as shot the people at the store. And he goes around town and he's saying, like, my gun was stolen, my gun was stolen. And obviously, this is like somewhat suspicious, right? I mean, it's like strange. Right. And so he ends up getting contacted, obviously, by law enforcement who, who question him. But they end up, you know, not pursuing charges against him. And instead, they say that Curtis would have known that this guy, Doyle, had a gun in his glove compartment and would have gone. And so like that. that and then there was also a person who claimed to have seen Curtis in the parking lot that morning, one of the route witnesses. So that's sort of how that was constructed. But the, the weirdness of the gun also has to do with the fact that they'd never had a gun, and yet they, they said that that was the gun. And that's really where, when I say that this relied on junk science, that's the junk science part of this. They basically claim to be able to identify with 100% certainty whether bullets, shell casings that they had from the crime scene matched a gun that they did not have. Yeah, it's the most bizarre thing I've ever heard it, as I'm hearing it. I was, I was wondering if they ever, ever clarified it, but it sounds like they didn't. It's like, wait, this is the most, I mean, it, it, on its face, that's enough for me as an investigator gets my attention is this, this doesn't make any sense whatsoever. Why, first of all, he would do that, how he would know the gun was there. And how do you tie a man to a gun who you've never seen with the gun and you don't have the gun, but somehow you know that's the gun that did it. Right. And then also later on in the podcast, we report the existence of a completely different well, presumably a different gun. A man found a gun on the other side of town years later after the murders and turned it into the cops. And that gun is now missing. So yeah, I mean, so, so that would be the second piece of, you know, second part of the state's case was the gun. And then the last part, main part, were these jailhouse informants. And this was a string of people who all testified that three people, um, all of whom have recanted, who testified that Curtis confessed to the murders when they were locked up together, basically. And in the case of the third and final informant, this man, Odell Hallman, our reporting found, not only did we talk to Odell and he said, look, I made this up, he said that I got leniency from the district attorney when I made my statement. And so, and so we like ended up digging up Odell's criminal history, which was really extensive and somewhat hard to find. A lot of the records we found in the podcast were really out of the ordinary type places like a closed down like reconstruction era jail or like a shuttered um like basically abandoned plastics factory on the outskirts of town which was where the county was storing a ton of its records just in these like giant trash heaps basically on the ground covered in mouse droppings i mean we were just like so we looked through all this stuff and we constructed odell's criminal history and found that what charges exactly he was facing at the time that he came to be a state's witness and that matched exactly what he was telling us about what happened when he became a state's witness and so all of that was new, not only his recantation, but also what happened. And Odell is someone who was like a local, well-known local violent drug dealer, basically. And someone that lots of people in the community did not like, you know, was a very violent person, a domestic violence person as well. And he kept getting treated with leniency. He did things like he tried to run over a law enforcement officer and yet really not punished for that, not punished for that at all, actually. And then 
eventually he, because he was out, even though he had such a long criminal record, he ended up killing his ex-girlfriend, her mother, and someone else, like on this like, kind of very violent evening rampage. And so now he's serving three life sentences in prison. But at trial, you know, he didn't come across to the jurors as Odell Hallman, the violent drug dealer who's very transactional. Instead, he came across as like the guy who's trying to do the right thing, you know, because he told the jury, look, I didn't get anything in exchange for this testimony. And that's what the district attorney said as well. And so the jury thought, wow, you know, he's really coming forward to tell the truth, I, I guess. I mean, at least the juries who convicted him. But he's, you know, obviously a beyond problematic witness. And he told us that, you know, I mean, he's just straight up told us he lied. You know, it's it's so common in just about every wrongful conviction case that we work. It, it always seems like whenever the police are short on evidence, they always go down to the jail and start drumming up these jailhouse, these jailhouse informants. And it, so it's not surprising to me at all. It's actually in our question here when people submit cases to us. One of the questions we ask, were there jailhouse informants? Because right. in so many of them, we see that same thing. Right. Well, there's this idea that, like, you know, you would, I mean, not that no one would ever confess to a stranger, but it's a little odd, right? Just the eye on its face, the idea that, like, you've been arrested, you're saying, I'm not guilty, and yet you meet a stranger and you confess the whole thing to them. Right. Yep. And we've had case after case where it's the same thing, where it's like, this person has maintained their innocence to everyone and every, you know, everyone they come across for all these years, but they went into the jailhouse and, and just told everyone they did it. And, right. But somehow juries seem to buy it. You know, wh- one other question I wanted to ask is one thing that wasn't clear to me was how did the police land on Curtis as a suspect to begin with? Like, why was he questioned at all at the very beginning? Yeah. So it had to do as best we can tell. So the thing I should say, and this is in a later episode of the series, like, the investigative file was like in shambles, basically. I mean, it's like not in chronological order. And also there are not traditional things you would find in an investigative file. Like there really aren't very many like typed notes. They're just like hand scrawled, just words on a sheet of paper that are meant to document an entire conversation with someone, you know, just like some of them are not even legible. So there's mm-hmm. like the file itself is problematic. But as best we could tell from piecing it together and talking to people, it seems like what happened was that Within a few hours or even maybe less of the murders, law enforcement talked to family members of the people who were shot at the store. And very, very quickly, those family members pointed the finger at Curtis Flowers. And we talked to two people who had family members who were killed at the store and two men, both white. And they told us two similar but different stories about why they thought Curtis was was suspicious in the store. Curtis is black. They are white. And they said that you know, one person, one man told us, you know, Curtis was making like too much eye contact with the people in the store, the white people in the store. And the other person said, well, you know, what's weird about Curtis is he would never make eye contact with me, which is hmm. odd. So it was basically, I mean, we, in the episode where we talk about this, we also tell the story of Emmett Till. And that's, you know, because of the similarity between with the conduct of a black person in a store being scrutinized by white people and adding up to something other than what it seems like it actually was. So Curtis's behavior was viewed with suspicion by the family members in the store, even though that behavior, I mean, we interviewed these people, was not violent, you know, or angry or anything. You know, it was this eye contact, no eye contact. Um, and, and, you know, discussion of like the white woman in the store not feeling comfortable around him. But again, like not in any kind of specific way. And this was a store where, you know, the, white, the women in question were white. Anyways, and so the law enforcement starts looking at Curtis, and as best we can tell, that's why there would not be anything else that would point to Curtis. 
And then they start basically investigating him. They question him. He describes where he was that day. He, you know, that he wasn't at the store. And, you know, he's not arrested right away. He's arrested months later. And so in that kind of several months long period is when they interview the people who end up saying that they, they saw Curtis walking around town that day. That's when they kind of put together the part of the case that they're going to use about the gun. And then once Curtis is arrested, that's when the jailhouse informants start to come into play. And so what the, the, the state is left with, which I assume is, is what led to the charges being dropped, is, you know, throughout your interview, the, the route witnesses, you know, one after another basically said the police went to them. And, I, you know, the, the one man, I, it was kind of bone chilling to hear him say that, you know, they basically told him what he saw and on what day. And he said, well, you know, all I had to do is, is go stand on the witness stand and they just asked me the questions and I answered them because he was, he was telling their story. So the route was kind of tore apart. The gun was kind of tore apart with, with junk science. The snitches recanted. So the, it seemed the state had nothing left to charge Curtis with. And, and so now the charges ultimately dropped and this nightmare is over for him. Do you know, or has it been stated by any of the local officials, now that Curtis Flowers, the case has been dropped against him, do they have any intention of reopening the investigation? And has there been any family members of the victims that are pushing for that? As far as we know, there's no plans to reopen the investigation. And the family members, at least some of the family members of the victims, the ones who've talked about it in recent days, definitely still think Curtis did it. So, and the prosecutor, the original district attorney is still the district attorney who recused himself from the case. So he's not the one who made the decision to drop the charges, but he's still the DA. Right. The last time I talked to him, which was, you know, not after this, but I mean, he's been very consistent that he thinks Curtis did it. And so I think what's happening here is what often happens in these kinds of cases where somebody is, you know, released from prison, but the law enforcement basically still thinks that he did it. And so they're not going to launch a new investigation. I mean, that could change, but that at least right now, there's no plans to open a new investigation. And so, you know, if you're the family members of the victims, you've also lived this through six trials. And, you know, it's it's difficult for everybody involved. And it might end up being the case that no one else is charged. I don't know. Certainly, that's something that we would be really interested in if there was a a reopen investigation. On the other hand, you know, our, our focus was always really on the actions of the prosecutor and less on the solving of the case. Right. And, you know, I, I want to tell you as we're wrapping things up, I, I, I'm loving the production. The work is great, had great results. And, and I really admire your professionalism. I feel like I'm learning from you as I'm, I'm, I'm five years into this, this podcasting business and, and trying to learn how to be more of a reporter. And, and I think you set a great example uh, in the work that you were doing. So with all that being said, you have uh, In the Dark Season 1 and Season 2, and you said you have a Season 3 in the mix. Can you give us any clues about Season 3 or, or maybe when we might expect to see it? No, I wish I could, but I really can't. <laughs> so stay tuned. All, all top secret. All right. Well, when that comes out, I would, I would love to talk to you again. I can't wait to listen to it. I can't wait to finish Season 2 and go back to check out Season 1. And I hope a lot of our listeners will do the same. And thank you very, very much, Madeline, for taking the time to share all that with us. Yeah, no problem. So good to talk to you.
Crime Binge is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Audioboom. Produced and edited by Mike Bussing. Music and artwork by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our website, TrueCrimeBinge.com, was created by Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com. If you're a listener and would like to recommend a future guest or a podcaster that would like to request an interview, you can do so right on our website. And again, that web address is TrueCrimeBinge.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do me a huge favor and take a minute to rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you're using to listen. And make sure you give us a follow on social media. We can be found everywhere at True Crime Binge. Thank you so much for listening, and make sure you tune in next Wednesday morning for another podcaster, another case, and another True Crime Binge.